Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, or JOMA, podcast. I'm your host, Elisa Minkin. I am a general pediatrician and proud JOMA member. And today, I'm really honored and really excited to be interviewing another proud JOMA member. Again, if you have questions about our podcast, comments, recommendations to make it better, we do appreciate that. Please reach out to us at health, H-E-A-L-T-H, at JOMA.org. We do want to hear from you. Dr. Donskoy is a pediatric sleep medicine physician at Advocate Children's Hospital in Illinois. She's also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago's College of Medicine for Sleep Medicine Fellowship. She completed her pediatric residency at the University of Illinois at Chicago and her sleep medicine fellowship at the McGaw Medical Center at Northwestern University and Ann Roberts H. Lurie Children's Hospital. She sees patients from early infancy to late adolescence and provides an array of services from sleep coaching, sleep health optimization, and treating simple and complex sleep disordered breathing, movement disorders, circadian and rhythm disorders, insomnias, and hypersomnias. And this is part one because we've got a lot to talk about. Welcome, Dr. Donskoy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. Good morning. So I'm super, super excited to do this with you. I've been waiting a long time. <laughs> Thank you. Um, because I feel like as a pediatrician, I talk about sleep almost as often as I talk about eating. And if you look at my podcast, I've done a ton related to that. And so I'm really excited to be tackling sleep with you. No, it's so it's so important. And um, we all do it every single day of our lives, right? So it's important to to understand why we do it and how. Yes, yes. And and as I'm going to look at it primarily in this episode um, with um, the little kids, the babies and little kids, because I find that's where the bulk of what I have to deal with as a pediatrician comes in. Um, it affects the parents' sleep as well. Absolutely. So I want to start with talking about sleep in babies. Okay. okay. Um, I find that one of the first questions I'm asked is, should I put my baby on a schedule? And if so, when? And if so, how? Yeah, it's so hard. You know, we, we put a lot on young moms. Um, I don't know if I'm young anymore, but I'm among young little kids. So um, we, we all feel this tremendous amount of pressure to do everything right. And sleep is really one of them. Take us out of the picture on our own sort of emotional well-being and health. Yeah. And and just looking at the, the baby alone, we hear everywhere you know, how important sleep is for growth and development. But so, so the answer to the question is, sure, a schedule helps everybody. A schedule will help the family function. A schedule will really help the child. But what we mean by schedule, I think, is really important to, to sort of, you know, clarify, right? So when we are born, from the moment we're born through those first few weeks, there's a really robust brain development going on of a lot of different factors. You know, my neurology friends can speak to this much more. But one sleep-related factor that's getting developed is the internal circadian rhythm. You know, there's a small part of our brain. It's in the hypothalamus. It's called the uh, suprachiasmatic nucleus. And that is our internal clock or what we call our central clock. There's actually expression of what we call clock genes or circadian genes in many other parts of the body as well. So, you know, the gut, the skin, they're also responding to time cues and and setting us up on a schedule. But that part of the brain that's, you know, referred to as our central clock, that's getting developed very rapidly in this first few weeks. You can look at studies that um, put like little socks on babies and monitor their movement, you know, through actigraphy. And you can see that very soon they start falling into at least some semblance of a circadian pattern. And what I mean by that is there tends to be a time that they start their day and rise. Yes, of course, infants are still napping and sleeping throughout the day because they can't handle big buildups of sleep pressure. So they they nap to sort of pay that off. But then there's also a time at which they tend to start what will be the beginning of a consolidated night. And so this sort of preferred sleep-wake time is what I call their internal rhythm. 
This is determined by so many things. Genetics plays a factor. So a family of early births is likely to have a child that is going to fall more easily on an early schedule. A family of night owls, the opposite is true. And it's a combination of nature versus nurture. So there's a genetic component too, but there's also what's happening in the household, right? When are people turning on the lights, starting their day? When is there ambient noise? All of these are important circadian cues that the infant is picking up and saying, wow, this is really the time that activity, bright light, and sound begin. It will start to what we call entrain itself to that being its morning. And the night, the night follows. Really, wake time is the most important thing. When awake time is set, the rest of the day and then the time we're going to be ready for sleep in the evening are going to follow. So when when new moms, you know, I've spoken to new moms when they're pregnant. This is one of my favorite talks to do. Um, and talking about what are we going to do after birth? Well, when you're getting ready to go home with your baby, take a look at your, you know, your daily schedule. How does your household run? And what you really want is this kid to fit nicely into it, right? Which means that when you are really ready to start your day, that is when lights come on. That is when you guys speak in louder volumes. But when the evening comes for, you know, your child, that's when you want lights dim. That's when you want quieter sounds. That's when you want less activity. And by fostering this light dark cycle, this sound activity cycle, that's the beginning of this schedule. You know, the, the baby's going to do what it wants in the beginning, but you can start to foster that structure around sleep. That is fantastic. And I want to get back to sleep pressure. I never heard about it before reading an article that you were interviewed in. I want to get back to it. So let's just hold that for a minute. Okay. I want to go back to the newborn period, okay? Because I talk about this all the time with families in my practice. I want to have people understand what's normal because I think expectations are huge. So what would you say is normal for a brand new newborn baby who has no clue about circadian rhythms? Yeah, I, I would love to know the answer to that question too. <laughs> the way we answer that is with, you know, normative averages that we've collected with population-based data. There's no, there's no, you know, scientific experiments being done on, you know, giving infants artificial amounts of sleep time and seeing which one, you know, wins the Nobel Peace Prize in adulthood. We we know normative ranges based on collected data. And it's so wide for infants. I mean, less from less than 10 hours to, you know, 18, 19 hours. There's a huge amount of total sleep time that they might collect throughout the day. So that's really, really challenging. It's challenging on both ends. The mom, you know, who is watching her baby sleep less than maybe other infants she's seeing and wondering if that baby's okay. On the flip side, the mom that's watching her infant sleep so much and needing to wake them just, you know, to feed enough. But the truth is, is there's a really, really really big variation on what is normal. I would say what you want to look for is enough rest that between those sleep periods, an infant is feeding enough for good growth and good, you know, urine bowel movement output. I mean, this is like the first few days, right? Um, you want to look for an infant that they're not going to play with you, but is more or less kind of soothable, you know, and not overly irritable between rest periods. That's how you're going to get a feel for, yeah, I think they've gotten, you know, enough rest through these intervals, but it's it's a tremendous amount of variation. Right. That, that is amazing. And I want that to be, if, if the only take-home point for today <laughs> is that there's a wide range of normal, because as a pediatrician, I get asked all the time, how much should my child be sleeping? And it's similar to how much should my child be eating per meal? Those mm -hmm. are both questions I really don't like. Yeah. Um, but I do think that there's two types of people. There's those that want those numbers. And there's those that can accept that there's a wide range of normal and not to fixate on numbers. Um, but that, I think that's a really important take-home point because what if you are focused on X amount of hours and your child's at the lower end? Right. You don't want to be artificially worried, right? right. And, and you don't want to be overly stressed because, again, that's going to add to our, our guilt and our cycling and really what, what kids need, what kids of every age need, but especially infants, are you know, calm and confident moms who know they're doing the best because they are. Right. I want to go back to the very first few days because what I was thinking of talking about as an experienced mom and as a pediatrician is you bring the baby home and they're wide awake all night. 
they don't know that it's night yet, right? right. They've essentially flown in, you know, from inside you, which was a 24-7 dark environment, dark, quiet environment. And now they're exposed to that light, dark cycling. Um, and they may not know that we live in, you know, I'm in Chicago. Um, they may not know that we're supposed to be on the central time zone quite yet. So this is when you foster that rhythm. This this is when we introduce those ideas of bright light whenever morning is for your family, you know, um, feeds and even naps that are not entirely dark and silent, right? Versus how we treat, you know, the night, even if they're not sleeping yet at night. This is when you talk in hushed voices. This is when you're kind of playing less between feeds and during feeds. This is when you're still keeping it dark. Because even though they're not sleeping on this schedule yet, or rather they're not you know, living in this time zone yet, you're fostering for them. Think about someone who's landed you know, from abroad. They are not yet on our schedule. So what do you do? You foster it for them. Right. And that is really, really important because I, I, I'm thinking of this as sleep learning versus sleep training as opposed to toilet learning versus toilet training. I don't mm-hmm. know if that's a fair analogy. Sleep in general, it, it really is a skill. I think we've lost sight of that a lot through these expectations of this is the age, you know, someone sleeps through the night. This is the age that someone drops their nap. Again, all normative ranges too. Um, But we've lost sight of the fact that that's not just going to happen on its own. That's a skill that we need to help our child practice. The same way you're doing tummy time to help them build core, you know, and neck strength, the same way that you're, you know, using light and sound and activity and timing to help them learn when sleep is appropriate. Right. But you know what I'm thinking now is that it's easy to say that. Yes. It's hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard the, to do. I think the biggest problem, and I always tell tell new parents, I say, and this is made up because I don't know if this is true. I say the reason your child is up at night is because what were you doing when you were pregnant? It's dark all the time. You were moving around in the day. You were soothing. You were rocking, 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 and then you stop and the baby wakes up. I don't know if that's true or not. I just find it experientially to be true. Yeah. And I yeah. find it reassuring for parents to say, this will pass as you teach them. But then the big problem is you, it's easy to say sleep when the baby sleeps. No, not if you have older children in laundry. Absolutely not. No. Even if not, though, we don't work like that. We've already been trained on a circadian rhythm, and our baby is on a ro- the, the wrong cycle right now. Right. That's right. That's right. So, you know, I, I think it does come down to the fact that there really was very little cycling that had to do with the outer world right. when the baby was inside. Right. And so whether that's, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, the baby moved a lot at night. There, there is data that, you know, in utero, babies move more at night or more active at night. Um, I think it's also because we are sleeping and laying so we can notice it more potentially. Well, my OB colleagues will know that more. But but yes, right after birth, we need to get them on on our cycle. Right. And then to come back to the, the point about sleep pressure. Right. So there, there's two big drivers to how we sleep. One is this rhythm that we've been talking about, right? With this sort of natural tendency to wake and sleep at certain times. But we can't discount the importance of of what we call sleep pressure, right? So the the moment a, a child wakes up, the moment we wake up, any of us, we are building and building and building sleep pressure. We think maybe adenosine, you know, is, is the marker that kind of rises with that. That's actually why caffeine works so nicely since it's a blocker. Um, but but even this little baby, right, as they wake up, they build and build and build sleep pressure and they can't handle it as well as an older child. And so they will need to nap, right? And what happens when they nap? They slowly pay off the sleep pressure. That's the point of the nap, but they're waking up then refreshed. And so you've got this kiddo that's that's been napping throughout the day, that's been paying off their sleep pressure. And come the evening, yeah, they're, they're not going to be ready yet for a full consolidated night. That's why most infants don't sleep through the night right immediately at birth, because they're, they're paying off their sleep pressure throughout the 24-hour period. You know, I... I'm not suggesting anyone put their child immediately on the nap schedule either, but but you might start noticing times as this infant gets a little bit older where naps consistently happen. And you might try to foster, you know, nap time around those times, especially, you know, leaning towards the first half of the day rather than the second. 
so that by you know midday onwards, maybe they're taking an earlier nap, having more sleep pressure, able to have them actually initiate sleep for the night. Mm. I think of this as why it's important when your kids get older not to let them nap late in the day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there was that zone. The zone. <laughs> You're yeah. in the zone. You got to stay up. But that's I'm, I'm still on the I'm still on the newborns because I think it, it can be really challenging for parents to know. Well, what should I do? When should I start? When should I be concerned about a sleep schedule or trying to help them find their circadian rhythm? What yeah. age would you say that starts? The the setup, you know, the setup for what is night versus day can start on day one, but it's not something that you should expect your infant to fall into in those first few weeks or even like month or two. This is the time that you're getting to know each other. This is the time that you're figuring it out. Um, and and really, th- th- this can last. But by about month, like end of month one, month two, you start to see somewhat of a pattern of there naps. Um, and again, I don't think anyone should be worried if the naps are, you know, still every every few hours. But but I find that tracking, logging, um, it's one more thing to do. Mm-hmm. But if you're tracking feeds and input and output already, sort of tracking when they are consistently sort of falling asleep throughout the day, you know, how long that's lasting for simply tracking it can sometimes be eye opening and reveal patterns that it doesn't feel like are there when you're experiencing it. Can you give an example? Sure. So, you know, you you might you might have a baby that is, you know, napping every few hours, and it seems so random, and it's all dependent on when you fed her. Um, and and then when you start to write it down, you realize that, you know what, it actually seems every day like around nine, that 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 nap actually starts, right? It seems like we wake up like for six or at the, for the day, but it seems like by nine, like, yeah, pretty consistently that nap starts. So you might t- start to move your day around so that at nine, you're ready for that nap to happen. Um, and you might have, you know, the, the room set up or wherever the nap is happening, you, you might plan on it being a little bit quieter, maybe a little bit darker again, trying to try, trying to keep the, the, the rhythm going. But you might try to foster that nap to maybe last a little longer than it would have. Because then maybe as you're writing it down, you're realizing, oh, when I get the nine o'clock nap to last a little longer, she actually makes it to like 12 or one rather than needing a lap at 11 if it's short because, you know, I needed to run out to the grocery store. So I I, I find, you know, I don't ever want to give new moms more things right. to do, but it sometimes creates a little bit of sanity for yourself and helps reveal a pattern you didn't feel was there when you're simply tracking what happens. Right. But what age would you start this? I don't think it's realistic for a newborn and I don't think it's practical. I mean, they wake up every five seconds and you, no, if you're nursing, you're no, nursing. No. You might as well just I would not, not do addressed. this till like, right. I wouldn't do this till like the second month. To the second month, like two months old or yeah. one month old? Every child is very, very right. different. Um, that's an annoying thing to say, but I'll keep saying it. Yeah. No, but it's really true because if you're talking about temperament, you may have a child that's super regular and you can see it early on, but we're mm-hmm. going to talk about children who can be more challenging. And I, th- what I'm trying to get to is realistic expectations. I don't want people to leave this talk going, oh, by a month old, I should start really paying attention. And so many babies are not so regular. No. At that no, age. no. There's never a wrong time to pay attention. I think right. you know, we're, we're, we're intuitively doing it already. And and sometimes, I think sometimes it actually helps us. You know, I, I'm not talking about create a schedule for your child. I'm talking about try to record what is what is happening as an observer. You know, as an objective observer, what is actually happening day to day. By around month two, I think you'd be surprised mm. at, at how much regularity you can find. And that doesn't wow. mean day at nine sharp the nap happens, it means that you can start to notice, you know, ranges. Um, And I think that actually creates a lot of calm. You know, I think up until that point, if you're just left thinking that everything is random, then that's how you feel inside. It feels very chaotic to think that everything is random. Um, But I find that sometimes tracking it, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of sleep logs almost for every single age, because I often find there's a lot more regularity than we're, than we're noticing when we're going, you know, about everything else we need to do. 
Right. I'm going to give a push here for parents to get the help they need to get the sleep they need because it's one thing to do this when you're not sleep deprived. You know, at the two month mark, you're still very sleep deprived. Yeah. It's absolutely. asking a lot unless you're able to get help. So, I mean, like, again, I think it's this can work early on for some, probably more regular babies. And for others, you may not see a pattern and it may be an exercise in frustration. And that leads me to put you on the spot for what do you think about the 12 by 12? <laughs> Can you clarify what you mean a little? There's a book called 12 by 12. There's a whole method of, you've not heard this, of the, of trying to get your baby to sleep 12 hours by 12 weeks old. Oh my gosh. Well, that's going that to set up moms for stress and disappointment as well. I mean, everyone's a little bit different, right? Everyone's a little bit different. I think what I like about that idea is that it kind of splits the day in half, mm -hmm. just like day and night. Mm -hmm. So I do like that it kind of creates that idea of, you know, what is day and what is night for your child. But again, some are going to have success at 12, what is it, 12 weeks? Yeah, some by 12 weeks is the plan. 12 weeks. Um, honestly, whether or not they did the the program also, right. the temperament of the child and what they're ready, you know, what they're ready for. Um, but for others, right, it, it may create a lot of feelings of failure um, very unnecessarily. Right, right, right. I mean, it's, it's a more rigid program as opposed to yours, which, you know, tries to tune into the child, but also provide structure. Right. And, and, and just to be clear, like, I don't have a program. Right. The, the, the program, the, the idea of just tracking sleep is simply collecting data the same way as writing down when you did your feeds, right? It's the, it's the same idea. I'm never going to tell anyone to track how often they fed their child to put them on a diet. That's not what we're doing. Right. We're just logging it for our own information. Right. It's not a sleep diet. Of when it's... they last ate, right, when they last ate to kind of anticipate when they might need to eat again. This is the same idea. It's not putting anyone on a structure or a schedule because no two infants are the same. Even in the same family, even twins, you know, born at the same time to the to this in the same family. It's simply trying to understand your reality. Right. Your reality meaning yours and your baby's. Yeah. Of right. what's just what's happening. Right. So now I want to move on to babies that are a little bit older and maybe they didn't do that and there is no pattern. Yeah. Um, and it kind of brings up the question of, well, when can a baby sleep through the night? When can they not need to be fed? And what about the babies that are waking up every three hours at, say, six months old? Yeah, yeah. Everyone throws out six months. I think that's because there's a pub, you know, like published data that potentially sleeping through the night, which is simply sleeping eight consolidated hours, um, not necessarily, you know, your night um, or the night that you want. Um, is possible. But I think it's only like 75 or 80% of kiddos that do that based on the National Sleep Foundation. So that's important to remember that this is like a, this is an early time when it's possible. Um, it's never, it's never, you know, it's never too late to, to sleep train. Um, but sleep training, right, helping a child sleep through the night, it depends on a lot of factors. So if you've got a kiddo who um, is, you know, kind of consolidating naps nicely throughout the day, who you've tracked and does have a nice, you know, fairly consistent sleep pattern in the day, and you can predict when you're going to have success with falling asleep at night, right? If they've had a late nap, you're not going to time bedtime to be soon after that, right? You understand they've paid off their sleep pressure. You're going to time bedtime appropriately. Sometimes that's maybe even later than you want it to be. Um, and if they've grown well, if they've developed appropriately, if there's no issue with them skipping feeds over the night, it is appropriate to give them a chance to try to fall asleep independently, right? So this idea of sleep, sleeping through the night. What does that what does that really mean? It means that a child, an infant is able to initiate sleep and then cycle through sleep without something external. Right? Because every, you know, in an adult, a sleep cycle, meaning shallows, falling into shallow sleep, falling into deep sleep, falling into dream sleep and kind of tying that all up takes about 90 minutes. In kids, it's young. It's it's shorter. Um, you can have a child with a sleep cycle of 45 minutes. You can have a child with a sleep cycle of 60 minutes. So everyone, again, it, they're, they're unique. But every time we complete a sleep cycle, right, shallow sleep, deep sleep, dream sleep, we need to re 
initiate sleep. We need to fall asleep all over again. So the baby that you're asking to reinitiate sleep over and over throughout the night, the first thing that we need to do is make sure they know how to initiate sleep on their own. Right. Let me call it self-soothing in pediatrics. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Self-soothe, but but really people focus a lot on what am I going to do in the middle of the night? How am I going to respond if this, you know, infant, my baby is crying? Am I going to go to them? Am I going to not? Right. That's the conversation I, I hear a lot about sleeping through the night. And the focus really actually needs to be on how that night begins. Right. If that baby is able to self-soothe, if they're able to put themselves to sleep without someone holding, rocking, feeding, right, without external right. help, then this is a baby who is far likelier to be able to reinitiate sleep on their own throughout the night too and sleep through the night, right? Which is really... Right, right. It's important to differentiate what your expectations are sleep through the night. But let's put that aside for a minute because another important point on underscore is that it is normal to rouse, to come to the level of arousal repeated times in the night. And if you don't have that ability to self-soothe, then you're going to need your mom or your dad. Or both. Absolutely. Right. So going back to that ability to put themselves to sleep, what happens that I see is that they stay in the newborn phase of feeding as the last thing they do. And there's nothing you can do differently with a newborn other than feed them. <laughs> what age would you say, or would this be a gradual procedure to let them self-soothe? What does that look like? Well, you know, the truth is, is a lot of times we can feed right? And feed until an infant is kind of satisfied and full. Um, but but maybe arouse them a little bit or not let them fall fully asleep during that feeding. You know, in a, again, in an infant who's got a, a temperament that's a little bit easier, um, th- this, is where, this is where a lot of the effort um, can go, right? Feed them, but not not entirely to sleep. This is where the idea of like letting them get drowsy, really drowsy, but stay awake is very, very important because that's going to offer them that opportunity after the feed to sort of disassociate, right? Feeding themselves to sleep. It's going to give them a little chance to actually fall asleep after the feed on their own. Right. The problem is they get milk drunk. Yeah, I never quite understood how that was supposed to work. And I think the younger the baby, you know, the less likely that is to work. Yeah, it is. That's why you got to, we want, you want to feel, feel, uh, feel it out. You want to kind of understand your baby's temperament and you want to just try, right? Try during low pressure times. You know, the night is, there's a lot of pressure on the night, but sometimes with naps, sometimes other sleep opportunities, this might be a chance to simply try and see, okay, happy little baby tongue sticking out, you know, milk drunk as we say, put them down and kind of just give them a little rub, arouse them just a little bit of a drop so that they have oh, a hunch to shift. That just feels so wrong. What's the rule about never waking a sleeping baby? Yeah, well, it. I think goal, the goal is important, right? right. So the goal. So the goal in the first few weeks is is really survival, right? For 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 a family, um, and so this isn't something you're maybe trying then, but you're feeling it out. You're seeing what your kid is open to, and if if the goal, you know, moves away from let's just get through, you know, these days to let's try to see if he or she, you know, might fall asleep on their own then this is something that you can try. That is really important, especially if you think about doing it early. You know, doing it early, but not expecting it to succeed early. Yeah. I think maybe that's the right attitude thinking because the problem is that parents often just don't realize it happening. And the next thing they know, they have a six to nine month old who doesn't have that ability. Right. Sleep, sleep training, which is what we're talking about, right? This, right. this is sleep training. Sleep, sleep training is just helping someone learn to fall asleep on their own. That's what right. sleep training. Sleep is. learning. I'm going to call it sleep learning because I know, sleep training is so it's so. Uh, because but, because we're going to now dive into the cry it out. So tech, I, you know, I hate uh, the name. I hate yeah. the name cry it out because. You know, my, the analogy I always give families because I inevitably. I end up seeing families with a little bit of older infants, right? No one's coming to me the first few weeks. Right. Thank goodness. I don't think I'd let them come to my clinic. Right, I would right. say, just, 
just survive. Just right? survive. Yes, <laughs> really. And it might take longer than that first exactly. month. Right? I want the expectation out there. Just be nice to yourself. Yes, exactly. You're not failing if you haven't started sleep teaching. No, in fact, you're succeeding because you're just listening to what your baby needs at this moment. But, you know, the older infant, let's say one plus, right, that I'm meeting um, and we're talking about sleep training. I myself hate the name cry it out and that idea. Who wants to just intentionally have their baby cry? Nobody, nobody out there, nobody that's, you know, a normal loving parent, everything that we want to do when we hear a cry is just respond. Right. But I think it's important to continue to think about sleep as a skill. Mm -hmm. It's not just something that happens one day. It's like your hair growing. It's a skill. Right. And as your child is, let's say, you know, one, between one and two and cruising, right, and learning to take some independent steps, then my guess is one of the first times they let go of the couch and take an independent step, they're going to fall. They are. They're going to fall the first few times. And you are going to clap and you're going to go, oh my gosh, look at you. You just try to walk. Everyone come over. You're going to take out the video, right? And what are you going to do? You're going to have them try again. Right. And then they're going to try again and they're going to fall. And maybe this time, you know, maybe this time they get spooked and, and they cry during this fall. And what are you going to do? You're going to give them a big hug and say, I'm so proud of you. Let's try again. Right. And what you'll do the next day when someone asks you what you did is you're not going to say, I cried my baby out to teach them how to walk. Right. You're not going to say that. You're going to say, I was teaching my baby how to walk. My baby was learning how to walk. It was so exciting. It's this brand new skill that's hard for them. So it's frustrating at first. It's frustrating for me to see it be hard for them. But I know the more we practice, the better they're going to get at. So that is sleep. That is sleep. That's the same idea. It's just a new hard skill. Some skills come easier to some than others. But very few of us get good at something without practicing it. Right? And so that's what right. sleep learning is. Right. I love this. And I, I'm, I'm going to keep using the term sleep learning because I sure. think what we're talking about is instead of a behavioral approach that is the parent trying to control the child, you're trying to let the child learn. It's, it's gentler and it's going to take longer. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. We have to be ready for that. We have to be ready for that. Right. Um, but I think, you know, there's a lot of data on, you know, full you know, full, what we call full extinction or cry it out or, you know, just walking out um, and, and hard, hardcore sleep training. Honestly, even even that is really su- supported, you know, by the American Academy. Right, right, insurance. right. I find that most parents that I know don't want to do it. And right. if I have my bias, it's not my style. I didn't do yeah. it with my children. Yeah. But it does work. But there's a lot of controversy behind it. And I like having a more nuanced approach personally. Um and my patients, if parents in my practice do it, I don't think they're doing a wrong thing. I don't think they're traumatizing a child for life. I think that's been way too polarized. And by the way, we keep saying this, but sleep is really important for everybody. Yes. Yes. So I want to go to um, a related topic, which is where the child sleeps. Mm-hmm. So this, I mean, this, there's, there's really very little, you know, true debate on this, the safest place for a baby to sleep from zero really to to one now um, is, you know, in their own independent space, uh, meaning their own, you know, flat crib or bassinet, depending, you know, how much they can pull themselves up with nothing there at all, no stuffy, no blanket, no pillow, right? And actually in the parental room. So that that piece of it, I think, can make learning to fall asleep mm-hmm. be a little challenging after about six months because the child sees you and loves you and wants to be with you and you're there when they're falling asleep. So that can create a little bit of challenge. Um, you know, what, what, I, what I will sometimes recommend if a family is really wanting to help the child fall asleep without that visual cue of them there um, is I'll often, you know, bring up the fact that they're probably not going to sleep at the same exact time as that child. And so sort of doing the cuddles and soothes and feeds, but then putting that baby down, you know, drowsy, but not awake, not asleep yet. Um, and simply being out of the room until they initiate sleep, that can be a nice first step. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about co-sleeping? This comes up for me still. 
Yeah. It's a tough I mean, one, right? It is. It is. You know, I think really our, our priority is safety, right? Our, our priority is safety. Um, and I know that, you know, in real life, different situations come up, but I think, you know, everything we talked about here is, you know, good consolidated sleep for a child's well-being. Um, so we have to put the well-being first. And really there's no, there's no formal safe recommendations for co-sleeping. Right. And we are pediatricians and we are going to toe that line, not politically, but because we really do believe it. I do have families that do co-sleep and that's what they're going to do. And I try to help them be as safe as possible. Yeah. Because that's what they've chosen. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to respect that. I just want to make that clear because this is very controversial and I don't want to be misleading in any way. Right. Um, But back to sleeping in the room, I know the AAP originally recommended a year. There was an uproar about that. I know. I mean, even in my practice also, right? Right. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's challenging. That's why we, we try to find ways to at least continue to foster independence around sleep by, you know, at least not being there at sleep onset at the start of the night to try to create some of that independence. But, but that's, that's a challenging. Right. But I think they brought it down to six months. Did they, or did we? (laughs) Not a good point. (laughs) Right. Did they change it? I I I think there's a nuance to it. I think, I think I don't have it in front of me, but I think there's a nuance to it. Um, but I think I think that formal the formal one is is still a year. But maybe I'm wrong. I could be very really because I mean I see a big problem as separation anxiety at that age. Yeah, Me- right? for, for falling meaning, asleep. Meaning, meaning meaning for falling asleep and the baby sees you. Right, exactly. That's why that's why we try to stagger try to stagger when you go to sleep versus when they go to sleep. Because if they've got that ability to initiate sleep without you there, it's going to be less of an issue that you're there throughout the night. Right, but it does add a challenge when they wake up in the middle of the night and they see you. That's the whole idea of you know from these sleep training you know plans. Sometimes they require you to come into the room, and some children get very upset because they see you and you're not picking them up, not responding to them right the way they want, right. So I want to go a little bit into one issue I see with the co-sleeping, which is these are usually breastfeeding parents, and the babies are breastfed all night long. And I really want to dig into this a little bit because there is a philosophy, and again, I try to respect different philosophies, but there is a a philosophy of kind of like an attachment parenting style, which it is your job to parent all the time, even in the night, by responding immediately. I'm pushing you. So, I mean, I think we all agree that we are parents 24-7, right? right? Um, And we are responding to the needs of our children 24-7. But sometimes what the child really needs at that moment is to kind of continue practicing that skill of sleeping independently. So, um, you know, parents who do not practice attachment parenting um, are not less parents and they're not less responsible for their children in the night. They just have a plan, a different plan of what the child needs in the middle of the night and how they'll respond. Um, you know, I think, I think the idea of kind of that, that attachment parenting, I, I'm not entirely familiar with all the nuance of that, that theory, um, but I think it's, it's a beautiful concept. And, and I think our, our generation right now actually re, really leans beautifully into like feeling a child's need. Right. And mm-hmm. to them. So I think, I think that's an amazing, you right. know, amazing way we've come. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when it comes to breastfeeding, you know, I, I am always supportive of a breastfeeding mom. I think it's the, you know, the optimal way if, if you're, if you're able to, um, to feed, I think it's phenomenal as long as they, you know, want to, I encourage it. But I think what, what can happen sometimes is again, very simply, the child does not, never really learns to fall asleep right. independent of nursing. Right. And then there's going to come a point in time when you want them to know that. And you're just going to ask them to know it when really you haven't ever introduced that concept or practiced that with them. You're handing them an algebra test and saying, do this, right? you know, when they've never learned to add. So I don't think that's very fair. And I think, you know, when, when we are nursing, then maybe just at some point, and again, six months, I think is a nice mark to do it. If you feel your child is ready, maybe reevaluate at seven, eight, nine months, right? But if you feel like your child is ready, think about nursing them and cuddling and soothing and then hugging and then trying to put them down or trying to have them fall asleep, you know, without that active nursing going on. 
Right. What, do, what do you recommend when that same child wakes up at three in the morning? So, you know, again, I think the, the, the work, the real work comes with helping them fall asleep at the start of the night. Right. You know, as we start working on that, <clears throat> they will still have times that they arouse in the middle of the night because they still have that association. And and I like to never tell parents what to do in the middle right. of the night because I'm not right. there with them. Right. I always say, like, I'm not going home with you. So whatever makes sense for you and what you have to do the next day and you know your your own sleep, you do in the middle of the night. The work really comes with helping them learn to initiate those sleep cycles independently, that's going to translate into maintaining sleep too. All right. These are excellent answers. I, I love your approach so much, but I want to go into it a little bit more because I think there's a, a really important point embedded in this. You talked about letting your child learn to walk and letting them fall and cry a little bit. And I think one of the problems with um, responsive parenting, which is a fantastic, applied unintentionally in a, in a wrong way, I don't want to say wrong, but I, I can't figure out how to express this properly, but a parent who, who really is having trouble tolerating their child's distress, let me put it that way. Yeah. I think it comes from a misinterpretation of responsive parenting by a parent who has trouble tolerating their child's distress, and they feel that their child should never experience any distress. Yeah, And so I that's mean, what I think leads to the problem of the perpetual nursing all night which, by the way, then what I see is behavior problems with the child during the day. Well, because they're not sleeping well, right? Right, right. right. That, that's the thing. The, the thing to remember about that is that even though it seems like the night is smooth because nobody is making sounds or crying, that child is waking in the middle of the night after every sleep cycle, finding the breast, starting to nurse, nursing, however long that takes, right? And then reinitiating sleep which means that they're waking up and awake for far longer than maybe they would be, you know, were they able to kind of do that on their own. Um, and that leads to a very unrested child, right? And and we kind of talked about this, I don't remember offline or online, but an unrested child, um, they don't look like an unrested adult, right? They're not, they're not getting a you know, coffee, they're not taking a nap, they're not, they're not asking for a nap, I can guarantee you, they are really having a hard time controlling their moods, right? Because when we are sleep deprived, any one of us, we sort of lose that connection, that like processing step between our emotions and how we, you know, how we act them out. And so a child who's sleep deprived, is irritable and grouchy and acting out. And as they get older, maybe even hyperactive, right? Maybe inattentive. Um, there, there's a lot of ways this starts to manifest. Um, those are our clues that, that maybe we need to change something about the night. Right. That was a really good definition of overtired. I never understood the term overtired. It never made sense. It sounds oxymoronic, but all parents know that's what I call it. That's what it is. We all know that. Everyone yeah. who's been a parent, everyone who's taken care of a child, we all know that hot child that, that that skipped that nap, right? We, we Who maybe was supposed to have it. Um, I think as kids get older and they enter the school, um, we forget that that is what an overtired child looks like. We start giving it other names. Um, but absolutely, we all are not our best selves when we don't sleep well. Right. And that is a perfect segue into sleep issues in children that are not that are neurodivergent. And by that, I mean ADHD, autism, and, and other type categories like that, or even children with temperamental difficulties. Because we mentioned earlier, it's wonderful if you have a nice, even-tempered child. Right? <laughs> Who's got that? I want, yeah. No, some people do. I see it. I have one of those two. Thank yeah, God. you get one. You get one. A, that, that's get a mercy one. child. That's a mercy child. Yes. <laughs> but for, and, and neurodivergence is super common. It's considered to be one in five. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's super common, and it feels like more, because those kids take up more space. <laughs> Um, and it's bi-directional, by the way, right? Just to put it on, not to put it on parents. Oh, the reason that my child is not sleeping well and I'm like nursing them still at three all night or they're not sleeping or they're not in their bed or whatever. Um, these are often the children that were more challenging to begin with and not regular to begin with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you can start to notice patterns very early on. And, and this is also where I'll say that, you know, if you feel like your child isn't fitting patterns, 
right? Whether you're an experienced pattern parent, and this is very different than what you've experienced before, or whether you're, you know, talking with friends or even your pediatrician and, and things are not, not going that way for you. Um, this is a really good time to ask your healthcare provider if there are pediatric sleep physicians or pediatric mm-hmm. sleep psychologists in your area. I know that not every area has them, but you know, with the pandemic, I think a lot of um, a lot of those providers are are doing virtual visits. So there there is there is help and support. Um, and what I would say about any child who's neurodiverse um, is that I I really dislike initially just attributing all their sleep problems to that. Mm. Meaning meaning yes, of course, there's a tremendous amount of data showing that children on the autism spectrum children with some, um, you know, ADHD can have difficulty with sleep, initiating and maintaining. But sometimes we have to cross off, you know, the the normal stuff first, right? The sleep onset associations, um, those pieces of it. Um, and that's where a sleep psychologist or a sleep doctor can really, really help um, without jumping and simply saying, oh, yeah, your, your kid is having a hard time because they have this diagnosis, right? That's not a jump that I like to make. It's true that at some point we may end up there, but there's a lot of things to to kind of cross off the list first. Right. And one of those is sleep apnea. And I'm not going to go into it in great detail. Okay. <laughs> and I'm going to say right now that we're getting towards the end of part one. And thank you for offering to come back for part two, because we have so much more to discuss, yes. probably three at least, but we'll, we'll, I'll just ask you for two now. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> but we need to talk about sleep apnea because or snoring or yeah. sleep associate, you know, all of those obstructive sleep associated issues, because okay. that really needs to be attended to. And it's not either or, by the way, all of these things are not either or. In fact, I they're usually them- comorbid. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's why you have to be careful with somebody who just puts a label of ADHD on your child and look into these things as well. I really do believe that. Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes, yes, sometimes we don't stay asleep because our brain doesn't feel like it's safe to, right? So if we're not breathing well at night, our brain is going to wake us up as many times as it needs to, to make sure we're breathing appropriately. Um, You know, sort of out of the scope of here, but if you've got some kind of restless legs or movement disorder at night, the same thing will apply. We may wake up frequently and it's important that someone kind of go through your entire history and rule those things out. Um, You know, the one thing I'll say is that snoring is absolutely never normal. It's never normal. Sometimes it's acute because we're congested and then it goes away and then we don't have to do much more. But if you've got chronic snoring more than half the nights, more than three, you know, three months, um, talk with your pediatrician or talk with a sleep pediatric sleep care provider. Um, there's a lot of different reasons that a child might snore. Sometimes it's, you know, their craniofacial structure. Sometimes it's mm. their adenoids and tonsils. Sometimes it's their weight. Um, but it needs to be investigated. That's, yeah. That's a really important point. And I've not heard that because I've heard, oh, they'll go to an ENT, they'll look for enlarged adenoids and tonsils. And if they're not there, they'll say, okay, it's just benign snoring. And you're saying there's no such thing as benign snoring. There is no such thing as benign snoring. So we call it primary snoring if in fact it's snoring without upper airway resistance and without sleep apnea. And again, the only way you'll really know that is with a sleep study. Um, Because it's very challenging to tell you into a a trained eye, just observing a child. Um, But the truth is, is, you know, a long time ago, absolutely. A child snored, they went and got their tonsils and adenoids out and and it was done. And the truth is, is there's a lot more nuance to to obstructive sleep apnea in children. Um, In, you know, in in a certain age group, like that school age, like two to to eight. um, Yeah, absolutely. It's often enlarged tonsils and adenoids that are leading to the obstruction. Sometimes removing them helps. But, you know, as we learned in 2015 with the CHAT trial, the Childhood Adenotonsillectomy trial, mm-hmm. sometimes it's not the tonsils and adenoids. Sometimes they don't get better um, after adenotonsillectomy. Sometimes it's because um, of weight. Sometimes it's because of syndromic status. Sometimes they've just changed the shape of their face with right. mouth breathing. Um, and so you just really want to team thinking critically about what's happening with this child and importantly, why? Why is this happening? Wow, that's really important. And I, I did not hear that exact same perspective from, from ENT. So I'm, I'm going to remember that. You're, yeah. you're, that would really be a lot of sleep studies, though, because snoring is not uncommon in children. Right. So the AAP 
it has a nice set of criteria. It's actually from a like an over 10-year-old paper. It's from the 2012 position paper on obstructive sleep disorder breathing in children. Um, and they really have a nice, you know, th- they acknowledge, you know, 20% of kids snore, two to four percent have sleep apnea. So it's to study every snore is not only unfeasible, it's gonna, it's gonna be low yield as well. So they really have a list of sort of what I call like snoring plus one criteria. Um, There's a nice nice little table in that paper um, that just breaks down snoring, you know, plus one of these additional findings. Some of those are witnessed apneas. Some of those are ADHD and learning problems. Some of those are bedwetting, right? Um, So snoring plus one of any of that list um, leads to a high positive predictive value for having significant you know, sleep disordered breathing or sleep apnea on a study. And, and those kids really warrant the study. So you're saying sleep, snoring is not normal, but it's very common and you should look further, but it doesn't mean that every child who snores needs a sleep study. Cause that's an, uh, you know, a big deal, especially for it's a, a big, little yeah. kid. Oh yes. It's not fun to do nor school, yeah. but yes, if your child has snoring and any, you know, additional challenge, um, then it's worth thinking about if, if this is actually kind of under a bigger umbrella of them having a hard time breathing in their sleep. Wow. Can you um, send me that link? I want to add it to the show notes. Yeah, I want to read it, but I think absolutely. that's really important, especially for clinicians to know. Yeah. And I'm going to use this moment to stop. <laughs> we had twice as much things I wanted to cover and it was way too much. And so I want to thank you for agreeing to do part two with me. My pleasure. And thank that. you so much for doing this with me. I really appreciate it. No, it was my pleasure. And I'll send you that link. Uh, I'll send you that link later today. Yes, I'm going to put it in the show notes. Be well and have a good Shabbos. Okay, good Shabbos. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, .org, or email us at health at joma.org.